What I imagine I'll ask myself when I die is whether, whether I've lived fully, but even more than that, whether I've loved very well. Hey there, Heart Wisdom fam, and welcome to Jack Cornfield's Heart Wisdom Hour here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. I'm Ganesh Braymiller, welcoming you to episode 216, Heart and Mind, Wholeness and Emptiness. And I know I always say, this is a special one, but this is indeed a special one. I found Jack's final talk that he gave at the Insight Meditation Society, which he founded in 1975 alongside other Be Here Now Network teachers, Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein. Many of the talks, the uh, vintage ones that we've been listening to recently, have been from the Insight Meditation Society, and I'm sure I will still be able to unearth some others as we go along. But when I found this one marked on 3-18-1984, as Jack's final talk at IMS before going to California to found the amazing Spirit Rock Meditation Center, I just couldn't help myself but put this one out. It is truly heartfelt and has some of my favorite quotes that I have ever gotten from Jack. Some long ones and also some really short, quippy ones that hit home. I'm going to share one now. I know the jury's out on whether you like me to read quotes up front, but I'm going to do it because this one is fire. The only way to be free is to let go of it all. And wow, that really does not leave too much room for interpretation. And one other thing that Jack said in here that really got me. I mean, I think we've all been in different situations where we've left something. We've left a job, we've left a relationship, you know, even graduation day at school. Um, and it's always so poignant. There's generally some celebration, and then there's generally some sadness. So what Jack said here in speaking to the IMS students and staff about leaving was, I'm sad because I love everybody so much, and I'm happy because I love everybody a lot. And to me, that really sums it up and hits home. We are always in transition and those transitions are beautiful and also difficult, both because of our love. So, I would like to invite you to December 18th. Jack has a Monday night Dharma talk and meditation online presented by Spirit Rock. It is pay what you can. And Jack always touches on current events and whatever he has going on in his heart. I highly, highly recommend that. Another way to connect with Sangha digitally is Cloud Sangha, which is Jack and Tara Brock's brainchild for bringing digital spiritual community right to your home. You can go to cloudsangha.co for that. And for the Spirit Rock Monday night, December 18th Dharma talk, you can go to spiritrock.org or jackcornfield.com and go to the calendar. So there we have it. As always, I just like to thank you for being here and being part of this great spiritual community, working on yourself, and making the world a better place through your authenticity. So until next time, I invite you into the sweet coolness that Jack talks about early on in this episode. 
216, Heart and Mind, Wholeness and Emptiness, Jack's final talk at Insight Meditation Society before flowing over to found Spirit Rock in California. I do hope you enjoy it. Namaste. I decided to talk today in here rather than in the library as we've been meeting for some time now. Partly because it'll be the last talk that I give here for quite a while. And I like to talk in this room. It's it's a very special place. Um, And partly because the sense in the library has been of such rich kind of discussions. And I'd like to discuss today a little too, but first I want to speak as a talk. And I want to share in some brief fashion, I'm not going to talk so long, uh, some things about a vision of this place, IMS and our practice together, and also just to share in some way how much I love everybody here, how much I love you all. Maybe that mostly. The vision, I think, will kind of take care of itself. And people have come to me with concerns about the vision and how things are going to go or are going here. And I might ramble a little today, so please ramble along if you want. Uh, one of the things I feel is that there's a, there's a, a maturity and a, enough depth of people and numbers and understanding in the Sangha, the people who sit, LTYs, the staff, the board, everybody all together, that um, it's like a viable organism now. Uh, I have a lot of, uh, um, a lot of pregnancy metaphors on my mind these days. <laughs> and there's a certain level where, where the, uh, uh, fetus becomes viable. And in some, some fashion or other, I feel that we as a Sangha and a community have developed to a place where no matter what kind of extremes or things are, uh, uh, either presented or, or mistaken for some period of time, that there's a self-writing quality to it all. Anyway, I feel rested since the last time I talked to you about needing to rest. The, the sitting was wonderful. You know, it, it hurt some, as it usually does. Um, but I feel a lot more open body and, and mind. There are some changes which a number of you have probably heard about and staff, some others, that are happening here uh, just in terms of the teaching staff. The one that I mentioned in the last group um, with Lee's pregnancy is that I'll be moving to California this spring. And so teaching at IMS a lot less. Uh, I won't teach the three-month retreat except for maybe uh, a short period at the very end because the, the babies do uh, the be- first week of the three-month retreat. So 
I'll be busy, I think, doing my own practice. And uh, um, we just got a call and had a long talk, Sharon and I, together with Joseph from Australia. And he's turning 40 this spring, this this uh, April, or May rather. And in his own reflection, um, he made a decision not to do any teaching for the next two or three years, except for the three-month retreats. But he's going to take some time off also. Uh, to go inward mostly, he said, to continue and get on with his his practice and to deepen in some way. He said he felt like after 10 years now of teaching retreats, as, uh, as we all have, a real inner calling to do more practice um, on his own. Um, that leaves uh, Sharon, uh, who has now <laughs> been... Um, officially enthroned as the queen <laughs> and uh, who will be doing most of the running and guiding of IMS. Um, so it's a lot of changes. And for those of you who know Jacqueline, some of you anyway, know her pretty well. She's getting married this week, moving off to Texas and starting a whole new life and a lot of teaching and um, very, very strong t- changes, and they, they bring up a lot of feelings in, in me of uh, many kinds of some uh, joy, joy for Joseph to be able to sit, or real excitement in my own life, and what I've wanted for a long time, a family and a child and so forth. Um, uh, excitement oh, for what Sharon can do here. And also fear. Um, at times when I think about family or the responsibilities and all of that, it's scary. Um, and, and some sense of loss, sometimes very deeply so. Um, I don't really know what I'm losing in a way because I'll still be here and connected at times, but it's a season of a lot of change and some of it's really very deep. Mm-hmm. We had a staff teacher group where we talked a lot, I brought it up really about grieving and loss and the endings of things. Lots of feelings in it, people who are leaving staff and changes. I don't think we need to do that here particularly, but there was something very sweet in it in a way as well. Because even in the, in, in separations, um, and in big changes, at least for myself, they hurt in some ways, or at least the way I do them still hurts. Maybe they needn't if I weren't attached so much or something, who knows. But And my heart hurts sometimes from it. Um, and it doesn't seem bad. Actually, sometimes it seems really good, if that makes any sense to you. Because when, when it hurts, also it it's somehow feels opener, or alive, not that it always has to hurt to be open, but there's something good in it and feeling it all. And so, so here we are today together. Yeah, mostly I just want to 
want to say that I do, I love this place and I love you all a lot. It's very special. My own practice has kind of evolved over the years now. And it was a lot more of a mental practice to begin with. When I was first studying Buddhism and first meditating, um, and even as it got a lot deeper, it was a clearing of the mind, of mind becoming more silent and fewer thoughts and starting to see with a vision some clarity how things really arise and pass and are truly ownerless. It's, it's, there's a, there's a kind of coolness to that vision. Just like the, like on a hot summer day or something when you go into a place that's, that's cool and a cool breeze comes, it cools off at night. And that kind of vision of an openness or spaciousness of mind and a clarity to see has a, a sweetness, a, a sweet kind of coolness. And that was the way of my own practice for a long time. A lot of impermanence. Gradually, over the years of teaching and continuing my own inner practice, I found that it didn't work for me to stay that way or it didn't work for me to continue to practice in just that way. I found that in teaching, and I think you probably find it in your lives, in your practice, that detachment was needed and emptiness, but also a lot more was needed qualities of the heart. Not of the mind of space, but somehow of the heart to connect with people to feel them, and really to feel myself. I think it's the same, you know, to feel love or compassion or frustration or anger or whatever, but to feel in a very full way. And somehow my, my work over these last years has been a lot more of that. Sometimes to the point where I, where I feel like, oh, I better be careful. I'm losing the emptiness. I'm losing sight of the space or the detachment. But I think that's, that's okay. I feel like I might drown or get lost. I don't think so. It feels, in fact, that it's necessary, not for everyone perhaps, but for me and many of us, um, to feel as fully as we can, to love as fully as we can, to, to feel or sense or experience our, our bodies, our hearts, our minds, our feelings, in a really complete way. When Sasaki Roshi teaches, he talks a lot about zero and one and how our whole life is going back and forth moment to moment of zero, meaning that it dissolves in one making it again, or of self and non-self alternating from moment to moment. But I'm not sure that it's moment to moment one or the other, it feels really more like both. 
of emptiness and inform. And for me, part of the way of practice and part of what I've, I guess I've tried to communicate in working with people, because it's been so beautiful for me, is to feel, to open, to touch in yourself what's going on very fully, whatever it is. And to use that to discover really deeply what emptiness is. Not to kind of skip over or ahead to detachment, you know, because you can do that pretty easily. The Dalai Lama said in his talk at Harvard, this long, wonderful discourse on the levels of wisdom and shunyata and emptiness, and a little bit in the beginning about sila and karma, and when he was done, he said, well, this may have lost you, or you may not have understood it. He said, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the emptiness. He said, if you have to believe in something, believe in karma. And I think it was his way of expressing the same thing, that there's a danger also in in the concepts or in the realm of mind where we let go, but as a way to avoid. I want to read you a story, if I may, that staff people heard just the other night, because it's a story from Ram Dass's new book, um, on one of his new books on service. And I, I want to read it mostly because I loved it so much. Um, and it speaks to these things so well. Take a look around. We're the only building left on the block. All the rest is rubble for urban renewal. We got some renewal going on right in here too. What's going on right now I call bilingual bingo. What with the different languages some of these elderly people speak. It will take five minutes for a single number to get around the room. Different languages, some people are a little deaf or distracted. Two ladies are into some argument. This one is always cheating. Three people yelling bingo when we haven't even pulled enough numbers for it yet. It's insane. It's just great. And don't tell me this isn't how the whole world is running, by the way. I see this as an average life situation. Richard, Mrs. Schwartz is looking for her coat. Excuse me, these boys moving around like waiters at a fancy restaurant, flirting up these old ladies, putting on their sweaters, reminding them of the numbers. These guys were heavy. I mean heavy. Years of dope, crime, doing time. They're in a program called Prodigal. And I bring them over here to the center to help them make that last step home. Last shot for them, maybe. This center's a last shot for some of the old folks. Both groups on the edge, but we're all on the edge. Of course, people were a little skeptical at first. Ex-junkies and ex-cons helping old ladies. They're out there mugging a man, is what they said at first. And then I'd say, now think about it a little. There's something here for everybody. We'll pull everybody just a little more out of their thing with this. And it didn't take long for them to see what 
what it really could mean. So I look around and it's wonderful. There's so much life here. I think it's going to explode sometimes. Then some guy comes up and says, that lady over there, she looks like someone I done one time. And I say, if that happens, go ask her if there's anything she needs. And he does. And I'm amazed. I can't believe it myself. I set up this scene, this crazy little world. I mean, the idea came around anyway. The old people and kids actually doing it. Part two. I come to this center for company, older woman like myself. This young man who takes me home, he's a very nice boy. His mother, she should be proud of how he acts with me. I know he's done wrong. Look, they did it to me. One kid put a gun to my head and went for my diamond ring and wedding band. He bit my finger to get it off. But you know what? I wasn't angry. Maybe he never had any parents. Who knows what happened when he was very young. I had some terrible experiences when I was young. Poverty and war. World War I, I was 10 years old. The Germans dropped bombs. A woman jumped on me to protect me. Her body was ripped in half. She saved my life. I was very frightened after that. I'm frightened now. But I'm grateful for life although it's a little lonely. But this boy, he drives me home or he walks me home from the center. He helps with my groceries. He says, wear lipstick, a nice dress. You're very pretty. You should get married again, a nice lady like you. That man in the center, he wants to get married again. He's not good enough for me, I say. You're right, he says, marry me. You're good enough, but an old Jewish lady and a young black criminal, what would they think? I don't know what he sees in me to be so nice. All I know, he walks me home. We talk and joke. I learn things about how things are in the world now, and I don't feel like I'm just a little old Jewish lady. You think that's nothing? You know how many other people I don't feel like a little old lady with? None. Nobody. That's true. How's that? Part three. Try to shake having been a junkie and done time, man. Everywhere you go, you get that. Since I was 12. But this woman, it's like she doesn't care. She says she had a hard life and maybe that's it. I told her how I robbed things. She says, Your mother must have been upset. Let's get groceries. You have time for that? Nobody ever treated me like that. I had never treated me like I had anything to give, just to take. So that's all I ever did, take. Never knew my folks. Started in when I was nine, four juvenile institutions, two escapes, on the street at 12, dealt drugs, burglary. By 14, I had my own car and apartment. Did a three-year bid in the prison. Had to stay in the hole because people tried to sodomize me. One guy stopped some heavy other guy trying to do it. Got caught doing it, but stopped it. It's bad in there. This woman, she shows me something. I've seen jive courage, but she's brave. She doesn't recognize how much she understands about life. 
I ask her questions. I'm curious. She's very interesting. Ain't nobody ask her questions now. So she forgets how much she knows. But I ask. We learn things together. We have a good time. And I done a lot of time. Old or young, no difference. I'm 25 and I feel old. My voice sounds old on the phone. So old people, I understand their situation a little. They're scared. I've been scared. They live alone like in a cell. I lived alone in a cell. So this place, this program, the attitude toward life they got going here, it's showing me some things. And this woman too. I'm not who I always thought I was being with her. Her too, probably. It's like you're free, I said. I said, you're going to have me born again. She said, that's not for Jews. I done enough time. I done enough taking. Time to give something. Time to be free. I realize that I feel very sad and very happy, both, at the same time. You think you can only do one at once, huh? I'm sad because I love everybody so much. And I'm happy because I love everybody a lot. (laughs) And for this place, it's really precious. And it's made by all of us. It's made by those of us who teach and cook and work and staff it. Even more by the hearts and the dedication or the purity or whatever. I don't know what, what you call it or the guts, or the delusion, whatever, of all the people who come and sit here, and your willingness to come and do it and sit, and and play and and see where it goes. And it's precious because there are so few places in our culture or in our world where you can come and let the mind get quiet and the heart get quiet and open a little bit. And we all really need it a lot, our world. And it has both of those things I've been talking about. It has that perspective, like in the story of, I'm not who I thought I was, of some deep kind of letting go, me, myself. Emptiness. And one of my favorite moments in all of teaching is when people come in and their practice is such that the factors of enlightenment are a little bit ripe, you know, and there's some rapture. It comes, you know, hang in there once in a while, or uh, rapture and delight and certain sense of real clarity in, in the, in the mind. Um, Things are just coming and going without a lot of 
movement of mind, real wonderful sense, equanimity, tranquility. And first there's just the joy in meeting that, oh, it's, it's true, isn't it wonderful when the mind does that and the heart does that? And then, of course, it happens to all of us. We get attached to that. And they come in and they say, wow, I got it. This is it. You know, it's really clear. It's so pure. It's beautiful. It's quiet. Detached. And then I get to say, which I like to, I say, you know, that's not it. <laughs> say that. All those wonderful things that can come in their time and practice. They're not freedom. And they're not love either. There's just something else that's going on for a while. And the only way to be free is to let go of all of it those experiences in any others, absolutely everything. To hold on to nothing, to see that none of it is ours. It isn't, and you can watch it. It's just a show of light, and dark, or whatever. So there's that. You know, and I think that's the kind of learning, both of these, that we take to when we die. Not going to be able to hold on to much in terms of the physical world when we die. I don't know how much else. I guess we'll have to wait and see. So there's that side, that side of liberation, meaning nothing grasped. And then the side of the heart, which is an opening or a surrender or a trust, a willingness to feel or experience whatever is here. What part of yourself have you not accepted? Have you not felt? Have you not allowed and loved? It's your practice, that's it. Being here this winter and being part of the teaching for the long-term yogi program, which is really the first time for me, I've come to appreciate it a lot. At first I was a little dubious, which is my nature anyway, or my trip. Uh, No. People hang out and they're afraid to be in the world and it's cheap and it's comfortable 
And oh, it's a little lonely and it's hard and stuff, but still not really practicing hard. Not like when we're in a three-month retreat or something when people are really practicing. And I don't feel that at all anymore. And, and I realized that I, I was mistaken. I have a, a real sense from all of you who are still here and the ones who've left recently of a, of a devotion or genuine genuineness to your practice in your own style, in your own way, in your own rhythm. And for a long period of time, for six months or a year or several years, as for some of you, that's how it has to be done. It really has to be a rhythm that comes out of you. It can't be imposed like a retreat. It's really very wonderful. It's beautiful. I really don't have very much more to say. I realize I kind of miss the dialogues we have in the library. It's it's a lot more fun to kind of talk back and forth. It feels kind of strange to be up here again. I mean, it's all right for new people who have not heard the Eightfold Path yet, but I'll spare you the free run. <laughs> See this watch. Yeah, I wonder, we talked about it, I guess, in the last group we were together, maybe it was that one. I think about I do think about when I die or when everyone else dies, because one part of what's beautiful about people even coming for a couple of days to a weekend retreat, I feel like it gives them something, some way to see or relate. So when the ships are down, even if they forgot it for 40 years, they'll remember. Understand a little bit of what it's like to open or to be with what's true and what's here. And the question keeps coming to my mind, it's what what I imagine I'll ask myself when I die is whether whether I've lived fully, but even more than that, whether I've loved very well. Maybe all the all the ways of practice and all the things we do are simply so that we can learn to love very well. Maybe that's all, actually. It's not so complicated. Anyway, maybe we could have a little conversation. I'm getting lonely up here. What do you think? 
sure I've heard a lot of Dharma talks, haven't you? <laughs> what did the Buddha say about love? Buddhism is so big, there's a lot that was said. Um, desire results of practice. You know, I, I don't know, because I read the sutras, and there's stuff written and a lot about compassion and love, but much more about letting go and emptiness and freedom and non-attachment and so forth. Um, but I feel it in it. Um, so I, I want to answer it in this way. Um, it's like, even with Krishnamurti, I read his books and I, I, I like them a lot. They're so clear and so forth, but they seem kind of harsh and cutting in a way. They're, they don't seem so warm, even though beautifully clear. But when I went to see Krishnamurti talk, I... One, one of, number of times I've seen him was right after I'd sat a lot. And I felt really open. And I got a sense, I mean, he was ranting and raving about gurus and authorities and his thing. I still, I got a sense of tremendous caring from him at that time, that he really wanted people to understand and awaken. And Ajahn Chah, who lived in the forest and who was my teacher for a long time, still is in some way or other, he talked mostly about letting go and non-attachment, non-grasping. But his being, his presence was love. It was really powerful. That non-attachment. And not grasping, and so funny, I've shifted too in teaching. Maybe you, you have in your practice, some of you. Um, I used to think an awful lot about what the Buddha said, or what the sutras say, or what my teachers said a lot. 
and I still like to go back and read it. It's really sweet. It's beautiful. I don't, I don't refer to it so much anymore. I, I somehow just refer to my own heart. Good question. Where is the Buddha? We are the Buddha. Uh-huh. What's it been like to be a teacher? Huh? <laughs> um, oh, so many kinds of things, you know. It's like, what's it like to be a man or a person? It's been heavenly and hell. <laughs> and various realms. Hungry ghost. What are the other realms? <laughs> Most of them in between. Times, you know... Sometimes just giving a talk, it really, it's like I disappear once in a while, and that's, that's just magic. Then I come back and want, want to have that to, to hold. <laughs> but, uh, it's been a practice, really. It's just, and it's really been, when I look at it, a lot of learning, learning how to love or learning how to be open. It's really what a lot of it's been, successfully and not so successfully at times. Venerable ones, says Zen Master Rinzai, what are you running about desperately seeking everywhere, getting fallen arches from your ceaseless wanderings? He goes on. Followers of the way, venerable ones, there's talk of a way to be practiced and the Dharma to be realized. Tell me then, what dharma is to be realized and what way is to be practiced? At this moment, what do you lack for your functioning? And what do you need to restore by all this training? Young students, not understanding anything, put their faith in wild fox sprites and so get entangled in random talk and fancies, such as that of the law, the theory, how the practice must tally, guard against the evil actions, and so on to attain enlightenment. Such and other discourses are as frequent as April showers. An old master said, if you meet a man of the way on the road, 
do not stand in the way. Therefore it is said, if one tries to attain this way, one cannot walk the way. Ten thousand wild fancies arise, chasing each other in the head. When the sword of wisdom flashes, there is nothing at all. Even before the light shines, darkness is already bright. And because of that, another old master said, the ordinary heart, that is the way. The practice is so wonderful. The place, everybody here. Okay, thank you.